true believers, and welcome to Circuit Court Entertainment, where we talk about how history and law have affected all forms of media. I'm your host, Nina, and today we are discussing why Marvel's The Guardians of the Galaxy, owned by Disney, is the only Marvel attraction at Walt Disney World. Yet, Universal Studios' Islands of Adventure has a whole area based on Marvel's properties such as Spider-Man and the X-Men. Two parks in Florida, only about 10 miles apart. And to begin our tale, we need to go back to the early 90s, specifically the comic book market of the early 90s. In the 90s, comic books were facing some massive changes. DC and Marvel had some new competition with independent or creator-owned comic brands, such as Image, Dark Horse, and Valiant. And they all had new ways of breaking into the comic book market. Dark Horse found a niche in licensing TV series like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Valiant licensed a game for the Nintendo 64 based on Turok the Dinosaur Hunter that would become a cult classic. And Image found success in non-superhero comics like Bone by Jeff Smith. DC and Marvel, aka The Big Two, also wanted to regain their status and profits. So, they decided to focus elsewhere, the collector market. In the early 90s, DC and Marvel began to do variant comic covers, which ended up boosting sales focused at a comic collectors and scalpers. The variants, to their credit, were significantly different. It could be a different artist or cover design, or they were holographic, or maybe covers could be put together to make a huge image. Sometimes, people bought multiple ones, one to look at and one to read. For every X amount of an issue a comic book store ordered, the number varied, the store would get a certain number of comics with a different cover. If stores ordered more than that, sometimes they would get an even rarer variant. But most importantly, people would sell them on the second-hand market for a large amount of money, usually to other collectors. Money that DC and Marvel may not get directly, but hey, the store had to order enough to get those special variants in the first place. This continued for a while, up until the bubble burst. Because for comic stores to make their money, they needed people to actually, you know, buy the comics they ordered. And the amount they were ordering just to get the variants was not sustainable. Add in a general decline in quality and exhaustion over storylines, such as DC killing off Superman and crippling Batman before reversing it in order to restore the status quo, and people stopped buying comics. So the store stopped ordering the variants, and in 1993, the big two found their profits suddenly and dramatically cut. Not helping matters was Marvel's decision to self-publish their books instead of going through a dedicated publisher. While the profits were greater, when the bubble burst, so were the debts they now owed. DC, however, was a bit luckier. In 1989, they had managed to get Batman onto the big screen. And it genuinely rewrote not only how comic book movies are seen, but the release of physical media afterwards. At that time, it was normal for movies to wait a year or more to be released to VHS after a theater debut. But Batman was released to home video after only about six months in theaters, and the VHSs themselves were about $24.95, or around $62 today, instead of only or mostly to rental stores such as Blockbuster. It made $411.6 million on a $48 million budget in 1989, roughly 12 times its budget. DC wanted to keep the momentum going, 
So Batman Returns debuted in 1992, right before the crash, and Batman the Animated Series debuted soon after. Both were also smash successes and had something also important. Toy sales and licensing deals. Batman the Animated Series brought in additional ad money. Lois and Clark, The Adventures of Superman, was also in pre-production at this time for a fall 1993 TV debut on ABC. That series would be playing more to the romantic and grounded storylines that were popular in the 90s. They would be fine. Marvel was not. They had tried multiple times to launch various movies or TV shows, but it hadn't really worked out. The live-action TV series, The Incredible Hulk, was a success in the late 70s to early 80s, but multiple attempts to spin off the Hulk failed. They tried to have a cliffhanger where the Hulk died in a TV movie, but with Bill Bixby, who played the human half of the Hulk, David Banner, unfortunate real-life passing, any further attempts there would be considered in poor taste. Howard the Duck debuted in 1986, and while it did technically make back its money, it was such a critical failure it's been routinely mocked since then. A Captain America movie was supposed to debut in theaters, but instead switched straight to VHS, and a Fantastic Four movie was filmed to keep copyright, but was never released. On the animated TV side, the only one that released in 1992 was X-Men. Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, and Iron Man did get animated shows, but only in 1994. There was merch and licensing, but without any major attention grabbers, that could only do so much. This came to a head in 1997, when Marvel filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Toy Biz, who frequently licensed Marvel products, bought Marvel in order to save it. At the same time, theme parks were undergoing their own changes. Universal Studios had decided to compete with Disney in the theme park space, specifically at Florida. The tram tour at Universal Hollywood consisted mostly of effects and scenes from famous Universal movies, and would sometimes go into detail about how they were pulled off. Universal decided to put some real money and dedicated space behind it, and in 1990, Universal Studios Florida opened. It had movies like Earthquake, Kong, and Jaws represented, but they missed the boat on a movie that debuted a few years later, in 1993, Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park broke records left and right, was a merchandising machine, and made Universal and Steven Spielberg a lot of money. Universal and Spielberg also worked together for the Universal Studios Park. Jaws and E.T. were two opening day attractions. So, Universal approached Spielberg to see if he would license Jurassic Park to be the headliner at their new sister park, Islands of Adventure. Each island had its own theme, such as Jay Ward's comic strips like Dudley Do Right, King's comic strips like Popeye, an IP-free area based on myths and legends, Dr. Seuss, and DC Comics. If you've been to Islands of Adventure recently, you'll know it doesn't have anything from DC. Instead, it has Marvel rides. You see, teacher DC doing really well with its movies, multi-Emmy Award and nominated TV shows, and merchandise, they were in a strong position. And the money Universal was offering was not quite up to what they wanted. So, instead, Universal went to Marvel in 1994. Marvel needed money desperately, so they agreed to the deal that was in Universal's favor. While we don't know the exact numbers, what we do know is that if Universal honored the contract, 
then they would get exclusive theme park rights to any character and characters related to them that showed up in their land. This would apply to all areas of the USA east of the Mississippi. They also could use the characters worldwide, but possibly not exclusively. With the deal struck, the rides were quickly retooled for Marvel with great success. The Spider-Man ride is considered one of the best dark rides ever and won several awards. The design for the land is very of the 90s, but expansive and well-themed with spots for Daredevil's law office or having the arcade run by Kingpin. The other rides have X-Men, Hulk, and Fantastic Four theming. There is a Captain America restaurant, and periodically the heroes and villains will wander around for pictures. With Marvel as just one land out of the five, Islands of Adventure opened in 1999 with mixed results. But that had more to do with how they promoted the park than anything that Marvel did. In addition, the Japan version of the Spider-Man ride opened in 2004, where it added 1 million visitors in attendance. However, Marvel still needed money to claw themselves out of bankruptcy. They decided to auction off their film rights. Universal grabbed the Hulk license, Sony got Spider-Man, and Fox snagged X-Men, Daredevil, and Fantastic Four. While there were varying levels of success, Spider-Man 1 in 2002 made back roughly six times its extensive budget, not including advertising, and X-Men 1 in 2000 made back roughly four times its budget, also not including advertising. Bombs like Daredevil still made back budget and advertising, and but DC struck back in 2005 with Batman Begins. With its more grounded take on Batman, it was a huge success. And while Marvel had gotten decent returns through licensing their movies, they knew that if they controlled the entire production process, they would get much more. Looking over what movie rights they still owned, they decided to take a gamble. Iron Man debuted in 2008, making back roughly four times its budget and launching the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or the MCU. Marvel decided to move forward with movies on Thor and Captain America, with other heroes like Black Widow and Fury as supporting characters popping up as a through line in different movies. But they ran into a financial problem again. Producing these movies when you are the sole corporation responsible for them is not only a financial gamble, but what happens when you cannot afford the effects or acting budget? Releasing the movies was handled by Paramount, but that only did so much. This would be so much easier if they were owned by another company. A company that had a long history in film and knew how to properly advertise. A company like Walt Disney Studios? Disney bought Marvel in 2009 for a then unheard of $4 billion, a deal, a deal that felt like it came out of nowhere for most people. Disney licensed the Paramount logo until 2012's The Avengers due to fears that Disney would make them more like Winnie the Pooh, or a less intense princess movie, and the comics underwent some of their own changes to fit with movies better. The deal caused interruptions with various animated series or other tie-ins, such as the cancellation of cartoons such as Earth's Mightiest Heroes and Spectacular Spider-Man. But Disney found a different problem. Park integration. The deal Marvel had made back in the 90s with Universal was in perpetuity, along with clauses about good faith, upkeep, etc., and Universal had upheld their end of the deal, barring one small incident at Halloween Horror Nights, where a portion of the event was set in the gruesome aftermath of the villains killing the heroes. But that was back in 2002 and was no longer an issue. Fans of theme parks wanted to see the end result with bated breath, 
Spider-Man was still one of the best theme park rides around, but had been showing its age. The rest of the land was pulled from the comics and TV shows of the 90s. If Disney broke the contract, the land would be lost, but hopefully the Disney parks could use them instead, with the Disney budget and Imagineers behind it. But if the contract stayed, could the land ever be updated or changed? Could they refurbish the rides, let alone update the art or characters to more modern ones? By the time the 2012 update to Spider-Man debuted, we received some form of an answer. Universal's contract would hold. They could refurbish and update technical aspects, but the art and character stayed the same. The main difference was in Spider-Man. The animation inside the ride was updated with minor character redesigns and a more modern CG animation. However, Disney could do some things. What Disney could do was mostly related to Marvel-related merchandise, usually related to the movies instead of the comic books, and a few stores that could not state Marvel in their name, and the monorail received relevant promotional wraps, but Disney did have one ace up their sleeve. In 2014, Guardians of the Galaxy debuted in theaters. A relatively unknown team from the fringes of the comics and real-life universe, the film had apparently started development in 2009 and was announced in 2012. The team lineup was unique to the film, and since it was most people's introduction to the characters, their rebel rock-and-roll vibe became how people thought of them. Sure, some old fans were upset that the old teens were lost or changed, but as far as Disney was concerned, very few people really cared about them beforehand, at least compared to the amount of people who are now buying Groot merchandise and shooting the soundtrack of the 60s and 70s songs to the top of the charts. In fact, the vinyl release of the soundtrack was the third best-selling vinyl of the decade, and Disney actually released a cassette of the soundtrack, the first time that had been done since 2003. More importantly to this topic, the characters weren't under the Universal contract. The old Guardians team had so little contact with the main Marvel Universe, they were considered enough of their own thing the contract didn't apply. And they were so minor that no character had ever shown up at the Islands of Adventure in any capacity. So in 2017, with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 on the horizon, people noticed an odd change with this promotional cycle. For starters, Star-Lord and Groot were actually meetable at Walt Disney World. Only for a limited time, but it was the first time a Marvel character could have a meet-and-greet on property with autographs and conversations. The Tower of Terror at Hollywood went down for a refurbishment and returned as Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, with a new display, queue, and storyline. In 2022, the Guardians got another new ride as Volume 3 prepared to debut. This time, Disney tore down the old and beloved by parents with small children, Alan's Energy Adventure at the Energy Pavilion, at the Epcot Center for a brand new reverse launch coaster. Also in 2022, Avengers Campus opened over at Hollywood. It had new and different Spider-Man ride, food options, and most importantly for our story, a rotating cast of Marvel characters you could meet based on what was new and popular at the time. And yet, the cycle repeats. The Japanese Spider-Man ride is closing in 2024, possibly allowing Tokyo Disney to use the Marvel property beyond Big Hero 6. The MCU is looking at a repeat of the comic book bubble with failing profits and oversaturation of movies and TV shows causing exhaustion, and DC isn't doing much better. But Batgirl and that entire discussion will be a future episode. 
But isn't it interesting that without variant comic covers, the theme park and movie landscape would be completely changed? Thank you for listening to Circuit Court Entertainment. If you found this episode interesting, please tell others as this is a new podcast. Please subscribe on all the major podcast services. And you can find me on Twitter at CCEPod. This episode was written, edited, and recorded by me, Mina. The script was edited by CJ Peterson. Podcast art by Empress Cirque on Twitter. Thank you for your time, and I hope to hear from you soon. Bye.